my vision is just to get our people to know who they are, to learn about the past, because there's a great saying that's at um, Sharp Noses Cemetery that says, if you don't know your past, then you don't know where you're going. Welcome back to the Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast, where we share the stories and science of the remarkable Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. I'm your host, Kristen Oxford. The Greater Yellowstone ecosystem is home to awe-inspiring landscapes and iconic wildlife. And since time immemorial, it's been stewarded by Indigenous people who view its lands, waters, and wildlife as sacred. The Indigenous way of caring for the land acknowledges its life-giving energy, is centered on reciprocity, and uses traditional ecological knowledge to keep the ecosystem in balance. Recognizing and reinstituting Indigenous values, beliefs, and practices is a vital step in restoring the cultural and ecological integrity of this region. Over 49 tribes have current and ancestral connections to the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. The Hinono'eno people, also called Northern Arapaho, are based on the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming, just southeast of Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks. In this episode, we talk with the incredible Crystal Seabaring, the Deputy Director of the Tribal Historic Preservation Office of the Northern Arapaho Tribe. Crystal and her team are responsible for the preservation and protection of the Northern Arapaho culture and way of life. Safe to say, she's a pretty busy person. We discuss the many responsibilities and tasks her office takes on, including the innovative ways they're preserving the Northern Arapaho language, repatriating ancestral remains from museum collections, spearheading the renaming of derogatory and offensive location names, and getting kids involved and connected to their cultural heritage. This is an episode you definitely don't want to miss, so let's jump into Northern Arapaho cultural preservation with Crystal Seabaring. My name is Crystal Seabaring, and I am the Deputy Director for the Northern Arapaho Tribal Historic Preservation Office. Um, it's currently located here in Riverton, Wyoming, and I am a member of the Northern Arapaho and uh, Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Wonderful. Well, we're so excited to have you with us, so welcome. Um, for folks who are not familiar, could you just tell us a little bit about what a Tribal Historic Preservation Office is? So the Tribal Historic Preservation Office is designated by the uh, Northern Rappel Business Council, ours is. So we're designated um, to perform the protection and preservation and conservation of natural resources, cultural sites, cultural resources, things like that. Um, All the duties that the State Historic Preservation Office holds. And so we're designated by our tribal leaders to take on that role. You've been working, they're also called TIPOs, correct? Yes. (laughs) Awesome. So when we say TIPO, we're referring to Tribal Historic Preservation Offices or officers. You've been working in the office for a little over five years now. Is that that correct? Yes. So in March, it'll be my sixth year working here in this office. How did you find yourself on the path to working for the TIPO? Have you always been interested in cultural preservation or, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about your journey? Um, I grew up here on the reservation in Wind River in Ethiopia, Wyoming, and um, my family had a big part. You know, they really pushed education, um, supported us in getting involved in our tribal government, um, made sure like we knew, you know, the uh, issues that were going on with the reservation concerning like natural resources. Water was a big one. And so I grew up with, you know, those kind of influences 
And I always knew I wanted to do something to protect the land, the water, um, to help our people. I didn't really understand what I was going into. And when I got into college, I just kind of followed my heart in a way and just took what really interested me. And then once I finished school, um, I had an opportunity uh, a couple years later to find out what the Tribal Historic Preservation Office was. I read an article about it and I was like, that's really cool that they do these type of things. I didn't know. And, and so I contacted the director at the time and I said, you know, are you hiring? And she said, sure, put an application, we'll interview you. And like 30 days later, I here I was, <laughs> I've been here since. That is so great. So you actually were like, I like what they do. I'm gonna find out if there's a space for me. Yes. That's beautiful. Um, and so for folks who may not know, what are some of the kinds of policies or programs or projects that TIPOs typically work on? Um, a lot of it, what we base it around is the National Historic Preservation Act, which is the Section 106. And so we deal with a lot of um, eligibility of um, putting on a register for the National Historic Places. Um, and so we deal with a lot of um, federal undertakings within our ancestral migratory territory. Our territory covers 17 states, and this is based off creation stories, migration stories, you know, just stories that we've we've had, oral histories that we've had, and it's allowed us to claim those areas as our ancestral migratory territory. It's basically from Wisconsin to Montana down to New Mexico, across to Arkansas and back up. That is our whole ancestral migratory territory. And so any federal undertakings that are in those areas, um, they're required by Section 106 to notify the TIPO um, to let them know that this project is being proposed. And then we have an opportunity if we want to, to participate in that. And we do that through like a formal government to government uh, tribal consultation. And so that's how it gets started. And then we come into different departments that we have with a GIS department for mapping. So we have somebody that looks at the maps, generates maps for us if we are out there doing our own tribal surveys. And then we also have our NAGPRA department in case, you know, they are out there um, on the project that's been approved or permitted. Um, and they do have um, inadvertent discoveries at times of human remains. Um, then we have our NAGPRA department that comes into play. And we also have our um, tribal archaeologists and our archaeological technicians. And so they're the ones that are actually on the ground. They're the eyes and the ears um, for our office. And so they're out there on the ground and monitoring, making sure, you know, they're not um, digging up things that they shouldn't be or vandalizing or destroying anything of our, our sites out there that we claim is significant. And that's kind of like the gist of our office. There's a lot more to it mm -hmm. <laughs> because we all, we actually deal, um, you know, with NAGPRA too as museums and institutions. And so we deal with a lot of things like that. Um, we're going out to visit and look at inventories. Um, it's just so many um, different avenues that we go into and cultural resource specialists we have here um, getting into the schools and educating our our youth and getting them involved in anthropology, archaeology, you know, just tribal history, treaties and stuff like that. That's in summary, <laughs> the the best that I can explain it, how, what our office is involved in. 
Oh my gosh. So it sounds like you guys are really busy, have a lot going on, but then also this huge territory basically to cover. So 17 states. Um, for some context, do you think you'd be willing to just give us some like history, a little overview of the history of the Northern Arapaho people so that we can just have a better understanding of kind of the historic and current context of the tribe? So the Northern Arapaho people, based on our creation stories, we have we were originally from the Great Lakes area. And so there's a lot of um, ling linguistic uh, similarities to people from the East Coast. Our language is Algonquin. And so that kind of tells us, you know, that we came from the East. And we migrated here um, based on our uh, oral histories, the breaking of the ice, which our tribes were got split because um, we were agricultural at time at one time and then we moved west and then there was a breaking of the ice story and so a lot of our uh, bands were split up at that time and so some went north some went south some went west and there's a lot of tribes that refer are of the northern Arapaho or the Arapaho people in general as the mother tribe mm. because a lot of different bands broke off and so that's why we have uh, relatives in Canada, and we also have relatives in Montana, the Grovant. Um, we all have similar languages, um, the Southern Arapaho in Oklahoma. And so based on our, our stories, you know, we've been all over, um, all the way, all throughout the country. And uh, just based on uh, oral histories and, and the things that we have found within this job, that led us to uh, different sites, even other tribal stories from other tribes um, that have been similar to what we what we tell. Um, it really is telling that you know we migrated. There's a cool story about um, the Black Hills, and there's a lot of people, the Lakota people, um, and other tribes who have identified the Arapaho of like being there mm -hmm. in the beginning. And so, um, you know, just a lot of similarities within those those tribes and our uh, allies at that time. So it's really cool to hear those from other tipos, from other elders, and, and just to make those connections. Um, we're learning like every day. And I'm pretty much, you know, I think that pretty much <laughs> the entire United States is everybody's territory <laughs> from a yeah. long time ago <laughs> based on these stories. So, you know, but that's just what we've identified as so far. Yeah, that must feel amazing how through the course of your work, you can actually start like putting the puzzle pieces back together and discovering connections and relatives all over the place. That's mm -hmm. beautiful. That's um, wonderful. How, yeah. How did the Northern Arapaho people end up on the Wind River uh, Reservation in Wyoming? So based on um, the 1868 treaty, well, in the beginning, there was the 1851 Horse Creek Treaty that gave us uh, land in Colorado uh, up to the, the South Platte and to the North Platte. And um, it was in Colorado, mainly in the Denver area that we, by treaty, um, that was our, our, our territory. And we made that agreement, but gold was discovered. And so once gold was discovered, um, a lot of settlers moved into the Denver area and our tribes kind of got pushed out. 
from then um, there on, you know, the Sand Creek Massacre happened, you know, um, and things like that. Um, they called them the Indian Wars, you know, um, where people were encroaching on agreed lands that the government gave us, you know, to um, live on. But they were encroaching a, a lot a lot of times the settlers were, and so there was a lot of conflicts. And then so the 1868 treaty came into play at Fort Laramie, um, and then they went ahead and gave those lands um, and kind of um, designated that those areas for tribes. And so the Rappo were a part of that treaty. What happened was the Southern Rappo and um, Southern Cheyenne went down to Oklahoma. The Northern Rappo at the time, um, we didn't have uh anybody that really designated or put us on a reservation yet and so uh, we were waiting to a general at the time was um, guaranteeing that we would get a reservation of our own and it was going to be in the northern central area of wyoming which is near the sheridan between sheridan and casper and that was kind of the place where we wanted to be um, but unfortunately, the general at the time, he passed away and they quit making treaties. Um, they said they would temporarily put the Arapaho with the Shoshones on the Shoshone reservation. Um, so we did. We temporarily stayed here. Um, and then <laughs> they just said, you know, you're going to be there. They, they didn't find another re reservation for us. And so we've been here since then. And uh, that was probably around the 1870s, 1880s, that all of this happened. And, um, you know, it was the Shoshone Reservation at first, but then they changed it to the Wind River Reservation. Mm -hmm. And the Shoshone tribe at the time contested us of being here, you know, um, temporarily. We were, we were supposed to be here permanently. Um, and there was a case, and the Northern Rappel tribe actually paid um, to, to be here. So they paid um, a lot of money. <laughs> and based on that payment, um, then we were allowed 50% uh, of the shares on the reservation. And so that's kind of how it became um, the Wind River Reservation with both tribes on there. That's incredible. So what was supposed to be like a temporary stop off on the way to... Northern Arapaho Reservation ended up with 150 years later, the two tribes are on the reservation together permanently. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that story with us. Um, when learning more about the work that you've been doing at the TIBO office, um, one thing that kept coming up were articles about your efforts to rename places that were holding either names that have degrading meanings or honor someone who committed atrocities against indigenous peoples. So what does it look like? Like walk us through what it takes to actually get an offensive name changed to an indigenous name. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been working with this with a coalition in Colorado and then also the Northern Cheyenne, the Southern Cheyenne and the um, Southern Rappo. Um, we, there's a coalition that we've been working with and um I didn't really know like what it in entailed until we got into working with this. And we did it over COVID. We um, met on Zoom over COVID and we started organizing. And that was in 2020. And so we just had a lot of different Zooms and we had to learn the process with um, petitioning 
uh, putting in a petition for with the Board of Geographic Names. And so we, we met with a representative from there, and she kind of walked us through the process of doing a petition. Um, then we'd have to um, submit a name. And so that's when we got to that point of, well, what, what do we want to rename, you know, Mount Evans? And the reason why we wanted to rename Mount Evans is because he was the governor at the time, John Evans, um, who actually was part of the Sand Creek Massacre. I mean, you know, he was the governor at the time and he um, there was a lot of um, atrocities that happened at that time. So a lot of people were mad at him um, and uh, just the tragedy that happened there and the dark history of it. Um, that's the reason why we wanted to rename Mount Evans. He did not deserve to have that mountain named after him. And so that's uh, how we uh, decided and the name Mount Blue Sky, you know, um, with the Arapaho people, um, that's kind of how a lot of tribes identify our, our people. You know, before settlers came in, you know, we weren't really called the Arapaho. We were Hinane. And so that just means the people. And that's how a lot of tribes identify themselves as is the people. But when other tribes would talk about us, they would refer us to as the blue sky people. And so the reason why that isn't important is because um, we, a lot of our men and women, um, some women had tattoos. And so what, the way they, they um, did the tattoos, um, they would leave like a blue tint on their skin. Huh. And so a lot of people identified us as the tattooed people or the blue sky people. And so um, that's where the name came from. And presently, like a lot of uh, places in our community, we have Sky People Education, we have Blue Sky Hall, you know, and we have different markers like that that identify who we are as a people other than Arapaho, the name. And so that's kind of why it was significant. And the Southern Arapaho at the time went ahead and submitted that petition and, and went for that name. And I agreed with it. Um, and I did a small poll over the internet because at the time we were in quarantine and I just sent it out to our community, like, what names would you like? Because there was another name the Northern Cheyenne brought in, which was Mount Cheyenne Arapaho. And so there was two options there and I just wanted to get a feel of like what they thought, um, what name would be better, you know, opposed to what I would think I wanted a collective um, poll of yeah. how the communities felt. And so I, I went ahead and I sent out this poll um, and it was really unanimous, um, surprisingly, that a lot of our tribal members, you know, um, wanted Mount Blue Sky. And so, you know, I, I got some support on that and talked to our leaders, talked to our leadership about that name and they agreed. Um, but there's also some people that are in connection with the Northern Cheyenne tribe too. And so they had their, um, their opinions with Cheyenne and Arapaho. The thing with that is there's two names on up for, you know, um, renaming. And there's a lot of people um, out there, Colorado citizens, who just want it to be um, the tribes to agree to just one name. And so that's been difficult because I understand, you know, from the Northern Cheyenne's perspective of why they would want it to be Cheyenne and Arapaho. 
And so um, I understand that perspective. But uh, I just I just like Mount Blue Sky. It just sounds better <laughs> to me <laughs> than Mount Cheyenne and Apple. So <laughs> that's why um, I know Mount Blue Sky just has a good ring to it. Yeah, so, that's a beautiful name. That's um, why I like it. And I've, I've seen it. I've been seeing um, articles all over the um, Facebook, off, off of social media, and just posters that have Mount Blue Sky on there that are promoting that name in Colorado. I've seen um, at businesses, you know, that are, there's paintings outside that they're changing the name to Mount Blue Sky. And so it's really awesome. You know, it makes me feel good. But I know there's the, the other uh, side of it where, you know, there's that other name out there that um, could possibly get picked. And so right now we're at that stage where the Colorado Board of Geographic Names will be meeting soon. And so they'll have to decide what name, you know, they'll want to push forward to the Board of Geographic, the National Board of Geographic Names. Okay. And so that's the next step that it comes to. Um and so we're just waiting and seeing what's going to happen and hope for the best. Yeah, absolutely. But either way, it sounds like a new name is on the horizon. And yes, you know, we can be happy to see one put to bed and a new, a new name that's far more inclusive and representative used. And mm-hmm. I really love that you did a poll because I just feel like for anybody who participated in that to then see a name change and feel like they had some stake in it must feel really empowering and just really cool. Awesome. So um, is there anything, generally speaking, that people can do to support renaming efforts like this? Like, it sounds like there's a pretty, you know, specific kind of administrative process it has to go through. But um, for folks who are just in support of you know, changing names in this kind of way, is there any action that people can take to support you? Yeah, um, specifically for the name change in Mount Evans, um, there is a place that they can visit. It's the Mastahe. Um, coalition, and that's in uh, Colorado, um, based out of Colorado, and that's the coalition I've been working with. Um, they put out a lot of good information, um, links, how you can write letters of support and send them to the, the Colorado Board of Geographic Names um, to help support the name. Um, you can also, um, there's a Facebook page that you can go on and where they're doing support of um, Mount Blue Sky. Um, You can also um, just call or um, get the information for the the people of the Colorado Board of Geographic Names. And I think Spirit of the Sun is a nonprofit group that's based out of Denver. And so they've been working a lot with the coalition. And so they have a lot of information out there. And they just did a big... um, I guess, a big event a few days ago. I, I was invited, but I couldn't attend, unfortunately. But they had a huge, um, just informational um, event about the name in Colorado. And they were on the news, you know, they got interviewed. And so a lot of things and what we pushed for in our coalition, it was just to get education out there. Um, a lot of people, even in Colorado, didn't, didn't know about Sand Creek and the effects of the Sand Creek Massacre and who John John Evans was. And so that's um, the big push that we had was just to educate community members to the Colorado citizens and to let them know, like, 
this is the reason why, you know, it's not um, just, <laughs> just to rename a mountain, but there's, there's a reason, reason behind it. And it's a pretty big reason. Yeah. And so um, just getting that education, we did a lot of webinars over the internet um, with Spirit of the Sun. And so um, just getting that knowledge out there and just getting that the other part of the history, the Colorado mm-hmm. history out there so people can make a better inform, informed decision about the name. Right. No, that makes sense. It's, it's not like just an arbitrary thing. There is some deep historic context to this and cultural context. And yeah, if you, if you don't know who he was, then maybe you look at that mountain and it doesn't you know, mean anything to you. But if more people know, hopefully they'll be like, hold on. Why are we naming yeah. beautiful mountains after people like this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any other name changes on the horizon, like things that you would like to see changed coming up? Yeah, there's one locally here. Um, it's, it's uh, they call it S- S woman Creek mm. is that's how we would put it. And um, so the local community here in Lander, uh, they're looking at renaming it. And so, which is good. I like it. And so I did, I went ahead and submitted, they wanted um, a suggestion, a recommendation of what we should name that uh, Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back on the history of the area, um, she was my, Great great grandmother. Her name was Matilda Spoonhunter, and she uh, lived in the area. She befriended a um, um, some settlers that had um, homesteaded there in near the Sinks Canyon area, and she actually helped save one of their children. Um, and then she befriended them, and so she grew up there. She was a very um, big part in the tribe because she had a lot of children and so that kind of grew like big families here and so she's a big matriarch in the community and so her her place where she was the area where she grew up and where she lived was near that creek okay and so I went ahead and her rapo name was um wahusei but that means bear woman bear woman and so I I recommended bear woman creek love it um in honor of her that's really beautiful. So I'm excited about it. We'll see how yeah. it goes. <laughs> yeah. All right. I've got my fingers crossed for you big time on that one. <laughs> so exciting. So changing gears a little bit. Um, it's been said quite a few times <laughs> that the national parks were America's best idea. That's kind of like the tagline that we like to give our national parks. Um, but many indigenous peoples were, as we know, forcibly removed from these beautiful, magnificent areas in order to create these parks and then subsequently prevented from actually using this land that they had been living on, shepherding, taking care of for thousands and thousands of years. Um, So how would you like to see the Northern Arapaho people better connected to places like Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks? Basically for Yellowstone, um, I think access to our traditional plants and medicines to um, areas that we've been disconnected from for a long time and uh, just getting our youth back out there to reconnect to those things. And that's a big part of like what our office does here. And a a goal of ours is to get our youth out there to reconnect to all these areas um, across the nation. And a lot of them are in the national park service areas. And so it's really important um, 
to try to create those bridges for them. And so our, not only our youth, but our elders can go out there and they can show the youth, you know, what they know, the knowledge that they carry and to pass that on. Mm-hmm. That's very important. So we have that connection, you know, with the young and the old and we, we're bringing that together. Um, another part of um, National Park Service, um, they talked about recently when I was on a, um, a meeting with them as a um, co-stewardship with the National Park Service um, that they have talked about in uh, recently in these meetings is that there's a lot of um, opportunities for us to work together um, to actually change the way the visitor centers or the National Park Service is um, bringing in visitors and, and educating them. And so we bring in that tribal perspective. We bring in, you know, um, information about plants and medicines, um, the history of the tribes, you know, and that's one thing that like not all tribes are the same. So we, we handle those uh, areas differently. We're there at different time periods, you know, and that's one thing that based on what we've done in Wyoming with different projects, with transmission lines, um, pipelines and stuff, where we have went out and surveyed the land, there's a lot of markers out there that lead towards Yellowstone that we're finding. And these are old, and they're from just tribes, you know, uh, many tribes that mark their, made their marks to get to Yellowstone. And so it's so significant for so many tribes that, you know, this area was just a place of healing, a place of prayer, a place to connect. And to get back to that would be really awesome you know, for, for our, our tribal people and to work in uh work together with the National Park Service to kind of steer it in that direction um, and keep everybody safe from the buffalo. <laughs> I don't <Right>. know. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of <laughs> a goal. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So um, so you're working to you know, hopefully get more Indigenous youth and elders connected back to the landscapes that are currently held within national parks. Another thing that you work on is getting um, like cultural artifacts and sometimes even remains repatriated to tribes themselves, correct? So if yes. we could talk a little bit about that, that would be great. You know, we hear stories um, about museums, like, for example, the British Museum receiving requests from numerous nations asking for the return of remains and artifacts, relics. Um, Are you, like, what kind of um, repatriation work are you currently involved in? Um, Right now, currently, um, there's so many uh, different things that have been coming our way um, in terms of repatriations. Um, We we did uh, take... uh, a group of veterans out early this summer because you know a lot of our society items are held in those museums so we got to take some veterans who want to learn about their their warrior societies and so we took them um, to visit these items and it was very powerful it was a lot of information and a lot of knowledge for them and for me as well just to be there and, and to see that there's a lot of our ceremonial items that are there too. And so um, just connecting with them and having and getting that feeling because hardly anybody um, over these past hundred years has seen them. And so I'm one of the few that have got to 
be there, you know, and, and see them. Um, I don't touch them, but to just feel that power in their, in the presence of them, you know, and it's very powerful. It's a very um, emotional time to be there and, and to see all these items that these museums and these institutions keep. Um, there's a lot of knowledge in there. There's a lot of um, um, just uh, things I think that could help our people heal. Yeah. And that we can connect to. Um, there is so many things that are coming our way now. Um, before, you know, we always, when I first started working here, we always had to reach out to the museums and be like, you know, do you have raffle items here? Can we look at your inventory? And it was always like, um, very difficult uh, to have a good relationship with those museums because they always pushed back. And they were like, you need to prove to us that it's yours, that it's Arapaho. And then we'd be like, how did you get it? And they'd be like, oh, we don't we don't know it was donated. Uh, and that was their, okay. <laughs> that was their um, go-to all the time, I guess, that you would say it was donated all the time. And so we said, well, how did you, if you don't know how you got it, you know, you need to prove to us how you got it. Um, and then just the whole NAGPRA process in the beginning was frustrating because we have to prove that they belong to us and that they're significant and that they need to come back to us. But we have to provide the evidence. And then they have a committee that decides if the evidence is good enough for them to return it back to us. <laughs> and so it's just a really weird system and it's getting revamped right now. And they're working on making some amendments um, much needed, which I think is going to help a lot. But over the past few years, especially with um, Secretary Deb uh, of the Interior, Deb Helen being in there, um, I think she's really pushed that, you know, tribal consultations and the, the boarding school initiatives. Um, and it's really... Um, opened up these museums to their eyes to see like, you know, especially with human remains, like these are people, these are, these are our people, <laughs> you know, these are humans that we have holding care. Um, one big battle that we've had for three years with the Chicago Field Museum, it, it was a battle um, over some remains. And they finally decided a few months ago because we met with them last December um, because they, based on uh, things that they were trying to do with skull measurements and stuff that were so outdated, but that was their excuse. And I said, is this a common practice today? And they said, no. And I said, well, why are you using it? You know, what, what's the reason if <laughs> you're saying, well, we don't really believe in it, but this is what we're saying. It's, it's probably not a rabbit hole. You know what I mean? And so yeah. it was just really, <laughs> it was really frustrating too at that time. Um, and then my question to them was just, well, okay, so if we don't get the, our ancestors back, uh, what are your plans for them? Right. What are you going to do with them? Are they just going to continue to sit there in a box on a shelf for who knows how long and you don't have a plan of what you're going to do? You just don't want to give them back to us so we can lay them to rest, you know? And, and that was to me... Um, just my question all along was, what's your plan? How, you know, how are you treating our ancestors? Wouldn't it be ethical uh, to return them so we can lay them to rest? And that's all we want to do. Yeah. 
And a big part of what our office does right now with NAGPRA is that we are focused on human remains because we don't have a facility right now to um, store items properly. And we're working on getting a cultural center and a repository. But our focus, because we don't have that, is, is repatriation of human remains and reburials. That must just be such a surreal experience to be talking to somebody about human remains. And like, do you ever just want to say like, okay, what if it was your relative? What if it was your great, great grandparent? You know, like it just, it's such a human thing to understand, to respect remains. Like, does it ever make you feel a little bit crazy? Yes. And I've actually asked that question to them. I'd be like, what would you think if you came over to our office and we had your grandmother you know, downstairs. And then we're like, well, you need to prove that she's your relative. And then we get to decide if um, it's good enough, you know, evidence for us to return her to you. We'll put it through our committee. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about it. How do, you, how do you keep yourself feeling like motivated and positive in the face of that kind of thing? Um, I, I, I really thank our team here. Um, the crews that we have um, on the ground, you know, we really, um, you have to have passion to work here. You have to be very passionate because it gets hard at times. It gets really trying and emotionally, emotionally exhausting. Um, whenever we do repatriations, as we say, it takes a little piece of you because you're transporting an ancestor home. And so it takes a lot, you know, you really have to take care of them and you have to talk to them all the way home. And so you always have to be mindful of that. And um, it's just the type of people that work here and we push each other and we um, support each other, you know. And so just to have that um, support of the elders, you know, that's very important to me is having the support of our elders and, and the, the guidance and the direction um, in our community and also our youth, you know, um, this per first time this past summer, we had uh, our interns, college interns come in and help. And they were a rapo and um, man, they really, they really made a big difference. And a lot of them, <laughs> they're changing their majors, you know, to oh, come wow. and help. Yeah, you know, a couple of them are. And so that's really good to hear because I was like, we need you guys, you know, yeah. we, need, we need you to help, you know, finish this work and, and, and improve and, and, you know, just get our our culture, cultural preservation in order and to help our people yeah, um, and preserve our language is really important too. But yeah, I, I just really thank our staff here, our community, our leaders, you know, it, it takes a team effort. Like nobody does it alone. It's always a group. It's always a team. It's always supportive. Well, Crystal, I think it's really cool that you inspired some college kids to change your change their majors. That must be so validating in a way. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool because um, we've worked with our um, local community college, and we're working right now to develop a, a typo degree. Oh no way! For tribal members, yeah, and it's just recently happening. So, wow, um, we're working on the courses. You know, there'll be a cert two, a cert one, and then an actual associate's degree, and so they'll have the same like um, qualifications as a cultural resource specialist through the National Park Service, and so that's kind of how we're setting it up. 
yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, that's probably the degree you would have gotten had it been available back when you were in school. (laughs) So you're like, I'm going to make it now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, What are some of the other ways that you get kids, either, you know, college age or younger kids involved in learning about their culture? Um, uh, There's a lot of uh, cultural heritage days with the schools that we go in and we kind of talk about what we do, show pictures, you know, kind of show them like how we survey land, how we um, document uh, sites and areas. We have um, just public meetings where uh, we talk about, you know, the different NAGPRA cases that are coming in play um, and that are coming up. And with the youth, um, we we did, uh, even with um, off-reservation schools, you know, we've been getting a lot of those um, with the summer camps and stuff. We actually had a a summer group from back east that came, and uh, a couple of our staff did a a culture culture day with them. And we just got letters back from them, and um, one of uh, thank you letters, and one of them was like, "You, you changed my life. And that was like really awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it was so awesome to to see those kids, you know, they're not even from here. They're not a rapo, but to have a big impact on them to like look at the look at their lives differently, to look at a different perspective, you know, and that's something that we always try to bring um, to our even our own youth is like just that perspective, that traditional ecological knowledge, we call it, and having um, incorporating incorporating that into um, today's world. And that's something that I've always pushed with our youth. And I've told them, like, if we didn't have the boarding school uh, era happen and where we got disconnected from our people and sent away and we didn't know, you know, we got lost at that time, you know, and um, all those disconnections start happening and those traumas if we didn't have that and we were able to adapt naturally um, into the settler way um, and we were able to naturally adapt in there, I think we would have already had our scientists, our lawyers, our doctors. Um, When you look at other countries who have, um, you know, meshed their culture with today's technology, um, a lot of Asian countries are like that. Um, where they've done it successfully and you know they're really advanced in the world you know they're they're improving and they're advancing and they're progressing and I really you know believe that if we didn't have that trauma of boarding schools that stopped that um, we would be right up there mm-hmm. I think we would be just as, success- as successful as those other countries yeah instead of having this rupture right there would have been Mm -hmm. perhaps the opportunity for more just like natural adaptation and like you know traditional ecological knowledge and science technology not mutually exclusive in fact you know highly complementary in many ways and I think we're yes seems like here in you know North America or at least the United States we're pretty behind in better integration for that reason yeah um you mentioned a little while ago um some language preservation work what does um what does that look like like what kinds of projects or programs are in place to preserve the northern arapaho language um there's so many uh we have immersion schools here um where there's the little ones are starting to talk um 
and we need to uh, get it more into the schools. There's preschools, you know, we have it in uh, high school and elementary, junior high. And then there's college courses, too, that you can take. Uh, we have an online app um, that you can download, and it has the rapal words on there. And, and it actually has an elder saying it, a man and a woman, so you can kind of get it, get to he- hear the Arapaho word. Um, there's different online, you know, things that you can um, access nowadays with um, technology yeah. <laughs> and, and bringing the, the language together. Um, a big part of our office, you know, what we're trying to bring about is um, getting um, kind of that, that age between, you know, the youth and the elders who do speak. There's that gap there. And it's kind of like us, the adults, <laughs> that are um, lacking. You know, the kids are learning, but then when they go home, you know, it's hard to speak to their parents, right. you know, and things like that because they're we're not used to using it. And that I think that's the, the big push now is just trying to get people involved. Um, there's a great Zoom uh, meeting now for parents, for families to get on Zoom every week. And, and they go through and they learn Arapaho together. And I, I think that's been working really well. And then um, Zoom's been great for language preservation. <laughs> and so there's just so many different um, things that we're trying as tribal programs and tribal people that, um, you know, I don't think it'll ever be extinct, but it's close. But I think the Arapaho will always be here. Our language will always be here. And um, we just got to start speaking it, you know, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm bad at that, too. And I've been really trying, you know, when I do talk, you know, I try to introduce myself in Rapple. I'm trying to um, when we're out at sites, you know, we're, we're building a plant, uh, a plant list, you know, of, of plants in Rapple, traditional plants and medicines in Rapple. Um, we're starting to learn words like when we are out in the field that we can talk to each other in Rapple and say, hey, there's. There's something over here, but we say it in Rapple, you know, and so that's kind of uh, the direction that we're going in the office. And it's it's been wonderful. It's good to hear that because me growing up, I've always there was Rapple in the home because our grandparents spoke it. Nowadays, you know, you hardly ever hear that in a home. And it's just, you know, we've lost a lot of elders. And so um just trying to get back to that point where you always hear Rappo somewhere is is the mission. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're doing lots of different creative things to connect folks with the language. Um, I love that. It sounds like a lot of kids are learning it, so that's really hopeful. So you mentioned that a couple of tribal elders were recording the Arapaho words for the app. What are some other ways that you get tribal elders involved in your work? Um, a lot of times, uh, lately, what we've been dealing with, um, like I said, the NAGPRA cases, where we we are dealing with a lot of um, sensitive items, uh, sensitive um, ancestors, different things like that that are really um, uh, need to be handled in a way that follows tribal protocol. And so we always call on our elders at that time to give us guidance on what we do and um how we're going to approach things. And so that's very important that we we um, have those connections. And that's one way a lot of uh, tribal elders will, will just give us guidance, especially our ceremonial elders. But then also um, 
when we talk about repatriations, there's also a lot of elders out there who have knowledge of Sand Creek. You know, um, when we talk about the British Museum, you know, they have Chief Yellow Calf's headdress. And so we've been interviewing a lot of elders from that are descendants of Yellow Calf and getting their stories and how he was played a big role in the tribe. And so we've been getting a lot of oral um, histories and interviews together um, for our evidence, you know, for repatriation. Um, and, you know, it's just always good to have elders and, and to learn the language, too. That's another big thing is to have them speak to us, uh, be comfortable um, for us to support them. And, you know, um, we just this office is really important um, and really needs that guidance. You know, we can't do it. We can't do it alone. Um, there's no way that we would be able to get where we are today if we didn't have our elders behind us. Um, are there any projects that you've worked on that are either a little more behind the scenes or not as well known or just things that you're particularly excited to have had a part in that you want to share with us? It hasn't happened yet, but we're making steps because we've all we've been talking about it since I've been here about a cultural center. Mm. And so, man, we've, we've been really pushing and um, trying to move forward, you know, and it, it's an overwhelming task because <laughs> I was like, at first, how do I even begin? You know, how do I start even trying to go forward and try to get somewhere where we can start having a repository, a cultural center, a museum, a place for community members to come together and learn about who they are? And I think that's important is you know, this place is meant for our people to learn who they are and to have that strong identity of self and um, to be proud. And so um, this project that, you know, we're just getting started, we're doing the community roles, we'll be start starting to do the community focus groups and just getting the ideas and um, everybody's thoughts on how this should look like, how this cultural center should be, um, what what should be in there, how we should, if it's going to be geared towards just community-based people or if we're going to actually, like, well, um, make it a place for visitors to come in, you know, and there's so many questions that go around it. But um, just getting on this path to <laughs> this cultural center, it's not going to happen, you know, right away. It's, it's going to take some time, but that's one project that I'm really excited to see that we're actually – taken some steps forward now and we're, we're, we're going along and we're moving along. So I'm excited. That's great. That's a beautiful vision. Yeah. Laying the groundwork now. I love it. Um, so in your mind or in your philosophy, you know, what is the relationship between preserving the past and kind of creating the future for the next generations? Yeah, so a lot of our, um, when our elders talk about, you know, being a rapple and stuff and, and the way that we set up things, you know, it's always about the the past, the present and the future. We have to look at all of those things. And um, so I think that um, my vision is just to get our people to know who they are to learn about the past because there's a great saying that's at um, Sharp Noses Cemetery um, that says, if you don't know your past, then you don't know where you're going. And so that's, the, that's always stuck with me. 
and um you know just having that knowledge of like we said you know from long time ago our creation stories our oral histories all the way to treaties um how we got here on a reservation you know there's so much history that makes you understand uh where you where you come from you know and a lot of us you know that are on the reservation or any reservation across the country we didn't just come from one tribe and so there's a lot of intertribal history that happens there's also uh you know non uh, non-tribal history that's entwined into your history because it's that's part of who you are and um so just getting that uh knowledge of the past and who who you who you are who you are as an individual um i think would help you steer steer your direction of what you're doing presently and then also helping you see what's towards your future and how you can help you know, your people, your community, your family. And I think that's the biggest thing is just, uh, you know, getting past these traumas and helping each other heal is going to really come from knowing who we are in, in our history. Yeah, beautifully said. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Crystal, is there any, any other work that you do in the Tribal Historic Preservation Office that you wish folks knew more about or just that you would want to share with us? Um, I think one thing that I, I really want people to know about our office is that we're always welcome, welcoming to anybody that wants to come in and, and do research and to learn and, and to know, and figure out who they are, you know, to read books. Um, we're starting a little library here. And so it's just an opportunity because it's a very welcoming place, I feel. Um, a lot of times we do our work in like a big circle, yeah. <laughs> in just like one big wow. room. But we work together and we feed off each other. And then, you know, next thing you know, the day's over. But you've learned so much because a visitor will come in, like an elder will come in. And then you're asking them these questions. You may be working on a project. And then they, they help you, you know. Or community comes in, community member comes in and they help you and they they bring in another perspective that or something that you didn't even think of um, and it just happens naturally like that but that's how I always say you know everybody has a piece of the puzzle everybody you know um, has something that you can learn from and we've always wanted this place to be very welcoming to that and uh, to make it feel like tribal members could come here and, and learn who they are yeah. Oh, that's so great. So it's like a really good community space, community resource. I love this idea of everybody sitting around in a circle working on something and then somebody walks in and everyone's like, ooh, they've got something that we can learn about. <laughs> like everyone yep. walking around has, like you said, a piece of the puzzle. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, so clearly you're a really busy gal and you work you know, on a really great team, um, but you have a life outside work as well. So what are some things that you do um, kind of when you're not working? What do you enjoy? How do you spend your time? Um, I I really enjoy my family. I know my, my kids are growing up, but my, my, old, my youngest, she's a senior in high school now. And wow. so my other two are in college. <laughs> I feel really old. <laughs> but just <laughs> just spending time with them, you know, um, we've always on, you know, they like sports, they like basketball. So we've always, 
um, got teams together, traveled with them to tournaments and, and, and just um, getting them out there. And my daughter just signed with a team, a college team. A few, oh, wow. Congratulations. Like Monday. Yeah. And That's so she, she made her commitment. Yeah. I'm excited for her. And she's our last one. I don't know what we're going to do after this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> after she graduates and goes to college, you know, um, we'll still be following them and supporting them. And so family is just a, a huge thing for me. Um, that's how I get re-energized, you know, um, going outdoors, you know, we have wonderful, beautiful mountains here and fishing, hunting, you know, um, just going out to the lake, going outdoors is, is something that I really, I really like. And I really, um, that's how I, I get my energy back, you know, and, um, to keep going forward. So, um, family and outdoors is what, what does it for me. <laughs> Family and outdoors. I love that. Those are two wonderful things. So one thing that we like to ask all of our guests on the podcast is if they have a conservation hero. So is there anyone in particular who you look up to um, either, you know, kind of in the context of your cultural uh, preservation work or um, sort of like ecological preservation? Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Good. Um, so it's, it's kind of... Um, it's with my family. It's, he's my great great grandfather, and his name's Sherman Sage. And he was referred to as Old Man Sage. He lived to be a hundred and seven. And so wow. he 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 grew up in a time. He grew um, what he says when he was free in eighteen thirty four, and so he saw the whole transition of um, living on a prairie in Nebraska, you know, and like the whole uh, transition to being here on the reservation. He was actually a, was an Indian police and he had a horse named Smokey who um, he was retired. He was decorated his horse too. Yeah. And so he saw the, and he, be, uh, he was one of our, our ceremonial and also our tribal leaders um, at the time. But one of the significant things that he did with a group um, with Tom Crispin and Gunn Griswold um, back in 1914 was uh, they helped name the trails in Colorado at Estes Park. And so they did all the Arapaho history, all the trails. Uh, one cool story is um, there was an anthropologist there and he didn't believe the Arapaho were there or they had that history there. And he said, okay, and he was walking, and that guy said, what is that old man doing? You know, what is he doing? And um, he was walking, he got to this tree, and he bent down, and he started digging. And they said, what is he doing? What is that crazy old man doing? And uh, here he dug out pots and pans. And he said, this is where my mom used to bury her pots and pans before we moved. And he said, and then over there at that tree, that's where another family buried their items. But yeah, that's that's where they buried their items. And um, so it was really significant at that time because it proved, you know, that we were in that area forever. And he he claims that the Arapos were there. Um, there's a mountain there. It's an old volcano. And he said the Arapos have been there since the last time that, that mountain smoked. And so that's been for a long time. And um, yeah, and he knew that. And so it's just, he's always been my hero. There's a picture of him, you know, during the expedition when they did name those trails. Um, and, he, you know, he's my screensaver. 
and uh so I just look up to my my great grandpa a lot yeah so pretty strong family through line there <laughs> of like the type of work that you do I always say like he they were the first tippos so it, Crystal is there anything else you feel like you'd like to share with us um you know, I just like to say thank you for having me on the program. I really enjoyed it. Um, nice to meet you yeah. <laughs> on the podcast. Hope to see you again. For um, sure. I think, you know, it's important, you know, to get uh, the education out there of what Tipo, what we do, you know, yeah. and we play, we play a big role in a lot of um, federal projects and, it's good to get that knowledge out there because, you know, what we're trying to do is preserve, protect, and conserve. And it's not necessarily, you know, I tell companies, I tell agencies, it's not necessarily to stop the project, but it's for protection and how can we work together. You know, we're not against advancement. It's just doing it in a, in a, a, a good way and making sure that we're, um, working together and you're you're listening to us and our voice and that you know um, what we're saying is not only important to our us but to everybody and we're trying to look out for everybody and to preserve that history so um yeah that's kind of what I would like to end and just thanks again for having me I really Absolutely. had fun thank you so much we really appreciate you spending your time on the podcast and it was so wonderful to learn from you about the northern Rapo people and about your work in the tribal historic preservation office and keep it up you are one busy gal but oh my gosh you are doing such incredible things so I feel really honored to be able to have spoken with you today so thank you Haho and thank you to Crystal for joining us and sharing your remarkable knowledge and work. If you want to learn more about the efforts to rename Mount Evans to Mount Blue Sky, or if you'd like to download the app Crystal mentioned and learn a bit of the Northern Arapaho language, we'll place those links in the show notes. The Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast is produced by the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, a nonprofit dedicated to working with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of this special ecosystem. If you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or sharing this episode with a friend. We really appreciate your support. Thank you for listening in and we will see you next time.